Casemiro's 94th minute equalizer secured United a point against table rivals Chelsea, extending their unbeaten run to six, the last three of which came against current top five sides in the Premier League. Coinciding with the positive results, it's becoming increasingly clear that United are also playing their best football in quite some time. Today, on Devils in the Details, we welcome the excellent John McKenzie to discuss where United have improved, where maybe they haven't, and what that means for the upcoming run of matches. Case, Thursday's episode is quickly becoming our most streamed episode to date. I feel like we're just doing our thing, but every week it seems like there's something new and cool. Yeah, uh, definitely exciting. Uh, People seem to like to get the content as soon as the game ended, (laughs) which we'll try to keep doing in the future, but no promises because, uh, I don't know, I think people also like this podcast because we, we, we try to think about what we say. And uh, it's it's tough to do that when you're caught up in the in the heat of a game. Speaking of new and exciting things, it's time to welcome our new and exciting guest for the week. We've been rewatching the game today, and as such, are delighted to welcome the wonderful John McKenzie to the podcast. You probably know John from the Athletics Tifo Football because his content there has been released in ridiculous quantity and quality over the last few months. Um, seriously, every time I go on Twitter, I see something John has posted, but. I've known John since pretty much he invited me onto uh, All Stats Aren't We, which is probably one of the best one club centric podcasts I've ever heard. I'm sure you guys aren't particularly interested in Leeds United, but if you are, I highly recommend it. John also welcomed Case and I to a podcast about tactics, his football tactics podcast, where he hosted some of the most exciting content creators and analysts in football, as well as the two of us earlier this year. I know thousands of creators in the football space, and at this point, John is easily one of the best I've ever met. He's changing the game. He's someone we've wanted to have on since we started, and I'm sure this is the first of many times he'll be on, because I will force him to be on again. John, how are you? Look, I told you that if you did too glowing an intro, I was going to walk away, and I'm I'm this close to just closing the laptop lid and, <laughs> and walking off because that intro is far too nice and is wildly untrue in many areas. So let's just get that out of the way to start with. But I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. Well, listen, I'll back it up by saying that John is here at midnight because he wants to talk about Manchester United's press that badly. So that's exactly <laughs> what we're going to do. The game was kind of, I think, I think the best way to disclaim this game if we're analyzing it is that the game was split into two a little bit. Um, and the point of change was not halftime. It was the sort of 35th-ish minute sub where uh, Mark Kukurea in Chelsea's back three was sub for Mateo Kovacic. And that catalyzed a change from a 3-4-3 to a 4-4-2 diamond. So what we'll do is maybe talk about the game uh, out of possession in both parts, and then in the second half we'll talk about the game in possession in both parts. So starting with out of possession, United have been and continued to go relatively man-to-man in the final third, pressing Chelsea in deep build-up with uh, the back three of Chelsea and their deeper mid- and their deeper midfielder. But I thought what was interesting in this particular game was that they were not directly marking the wingbacks. Why do we think they did that, John? I'll come to you first. Yeah, well, by way of context, I think it's worth saying that these are two coaches who are new to their teams, and they're both trying to implement fairly interesting pressing styles. And I guess the the takeaway that I had from this game is that... um, 
of the two coaches, Graham Potter probably tried the more ambitious out of possession system to start off with. And he flipped that around when he decided it wasn't working and he was happy to do that around the 35th minute. And actually from some of the post-match interview stuff, I think it was pretty clear that they had this possibility up their sleeve anyway. So I don't think it was a particularly um, surprise change on his part. Um, Eric Ten Hag, on the other hand, I think went for a bit more of a basic press. So it was uh, player to player. Um, we have seen Manchester United do a little bit more of a ambitious press. Um, they did so against Spurs and, and they did that by employing what I like to call a hybrid press. And what I mean by a hybrid press is that you are going to go man to man, but you aren't going to necessarily go man to man in every phase on the same players. Um, so you can afford to maybe be a player lighter in midfield, but as long as everyone is picking up the right players um, in, in the marking phases when the ball's on one side or the other, you'll largely be okay. Now, Chelsea tried to do that and it really didn't work. So they switched things up. So that's by way of context. I realise I haven't answered your question. In terms of why they were not pressing Manchester United, this is, why they were not pressing up on the wing-backs in their man-to-man press, I can only speculate because I, I look at something like that and I think if you're going to go player-to-player in your forward press, why leave such an easy out? And the easy out was just a clipped pass to um, Azpilicueta, which... Chelsea found a lot of the time. Now, we did remark on the fact that Azpilicueta wasn't necessarily the most dangerous player to leave free in these instances. Um, And we also, when we were doing the watchback, we did point out that actually Mason Mount started the game out on that side. And it may have been the case that Manchester United just didn't want to allow Mason Mount space versus Azpilicueta. So that was the decision that was made. But to me, the game felt like it started off with Graham Potter saying, I want to dominate the game in the wide areas and um, and try and stop Manchester United coming through the central spaces with this hybrid press that they did. Um, and I think when it got to the 35th minute, the decision was made. Actually, Manchester United are getting too much enjoyment through the centre. And as a result, rather than just allowing them to progress the ball quite comfortably at times through the middle, we'll switch things up. We'll bring off a defender um, and give ourselves an overload at the back in build-up as well, but also throw an extra player in the midfield area. And so that particularly Christian Eriksen won't make so much space and and therefore allow Manchester United to build up. Yeah. So, so you, said, you said a lot there, John. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break down what you said into two parts, really two and a half. Uh, the first thing about the wingbacks, just so everyone knows who's listening to this, John, Aaron, and I rewatched this match together today and broke down each of these phases, uh, which is why it's going to sound, we're probably going to be self-referential. And just so you know, that's what we're referring to when we say we agreed. And there's a certain point uh, when we were talking about the, these lobbed passes uh, over to the wingbacks that Keppel was playing where we were talking about possibilities as to why United weren't coming up onto these wingbacks. You said the first one, which was maybe they were trying to, you know, dare Aspilicueta to beat them. Basically say, okay, this is the, the player we're least concerned about. Put the onus on him to break this game open. And if that was what they were trying to do, it worked, at least early on. I'm skeptical that that's what they were trying to do. I think that's a, I think it's a bad idea to try to make your game plan around a professional footballer not being able to carry the ball down the pitch uncontested. The other explanation, I think you touched on this, is they were willing to basically take the risk that they, that Kepa was going to be able to make that pass, but you keep the fullbacks close enough that they can close down Aspilicueta during the, in the intervening moments between Kepa playing the pass and Aspilicueta receiving the pass. 
such that there's still not so much danger. If that was the case, it was a failure on the fullback's behalf, specifically on Shaw's behalf. As for Chelsea out of possession, you said they made a change uh, around the 35th minute because United were playing so easily through the middle. I don't think you said why we, we felt that United were playing so easily through the middle. Um, and I think that's an important point. Yeah, so as I said before, Chelsea were playing a hybrid press in, in the central space. And uh, as I said, what I mean by a hybrid press is that they are taking the risk of having a player less in the midfield and being able to move their other players outside of the midfield area in certain phases of play onto uh, onto Manchester United players in order to stop them from having players unmarked. Um, and the idea then, I suppose, is that because you've got a more fluid system, you're able to get better coverage across the field and you're able to have like overloads in wider areas because you've only got two midfielders compared to Manchester United's three. The way that they were doing that is that they were starting off with a fairly... A fairly um, passive block in their front line and they were using Aubameyang to sit on Casemiro who's the pivot player and then they seemed to have this system where Loftus-Cheek was essentially tracking Bruno Fernandes um, and then Jorginho was sitting between um, Casemiro and uh, Christian Eriksen and the idea was is that if Aubameyang pushed forward that would trigger Jorginho to push onto Casemiro so that Casemiro wasn't unmarked at any point and if that move was made then it was supposed to trigger Trevor Chalaber actually one of the centre-backs to then push forward onto Christian Eriksen in order to um, stop him from having any wide, wide tranches of space to, to be able to exploit and in principle that sort of system should be okay if you can make sure that everyone is in sync uh, to my eyes, Jorginho didn't seem to really know what he was doing in a lot of the phases of play. And what this meant was that was that Chris, like Manchester United could simply bypass the pivot player and go straight to one of the eights, usually Christian Eriksen. And because Jorginho was, was in such an advanced area because he was also backing up Casemiro, it just meant that, that that whole first phase of play was just an easy pass, usually from Lisandro Martinez into Eriksen's feet. And then Chelsea were just in a horrible defensive situation because they're then backwards defending. They only probably have one midfielder um, actually tracking in that in that sort of central space where Ericsson is. And yeah, Manchester United were able to just move the ball quite comfortably as a result. So we can really... Obviously, it's more complicated than this, but those first 35 minutes, we can say, were defined by United's press actually not working perfectly, but Chelsea failing to exploit it. And then Chelsea having conceptually the, this press that should have worked, but them failing to execute it, uh, especially. And I think the key failure there was really Jorginho was cheating onto Casemiro because he was scared he wasn't going to be able to close him down if Aubameyang came onto one of the center backs. And what that did was that left Eriksen in tons of space. Yeah. So, so Aaron, sorry, go ahead. I, I think that all makes sense and, and goes along with, I think, what we saw in the game. Um, I think maybe where we want to maybe provide more clarity uh, to people listening who maybe perhaps are less familiar with uh, identifying terms like hybrid press and man-oriented press, you describe two different hybrid presses in sort of the first 10 minutes here. The first one being uh, United's hybrid press against Spurs. And I know you did a video about this on TIFO as well. Um, and essentially, I think the most important aspect of uh, that specific video is how Casemiro is the player um, adopting a zonal approach and what that zonal approach allows uh, essentially allows for to happen is in the event that the ball goes through to a number of players outside the man-oriented press 
uh, Casemiro is able to make the decision to step and intervene in order to win the ball. And in this case, in the Chelsea uh, hybrid press, the player who is supposed to be making where the where the intervention is breaking is Jorginho. Is that correct? He's he's initially zonal, and then when uh, in the event that Aubameyang steps up, what ends up happening is Jorginho is the one who's supposed to engage the man, um, and that is where Chelsea's press is breaking down. Whereas maybe United had a more effective press against Tottenham, which is despite us talking about the game for an hour, something we didn't really talk about, essentially as a result of having an effective way to deal with the breaking of the man-oriented press. Yeah, I think what I would say is that in these hybrid pressing systems, generally what happens is that different players will have different responsibilities depending on the phase of play. And that we saw that happening for Manchester United against Spurs. So there were certain situations where essentially Anthony was sitting between Hoiberg in the midfield area and um, Ben Davis, I think, who was the outside centre-back. Yeah. And when the ball's on one side, he's going to be on Hoiberg. When he when the ball's on the other side, he's going to push across onto Davis. And the big question is, like, when he pushes across to Davis, who takes up Hoiberg? And we saw two players do that. So we saw Fernandes do it sometimes. Um, and when Fernandes did it, then Fred had to move to take up Fernandes's marking responsibility, which was um, Bazuma, I think. Uh, yeah, and there was other situations where actually it was it was easier for um, Casemiro, who was basically playing as a more zonal player, to then step up and, and cover that man as well. Um, and those hybrid pressures like stand and fall on the ability of players to read triggers. And it's not just I, I wouldn't say just like triggers that you can look at and say this is the moment where I should push because this thing has happened. It's just being it's more I would say generalized being able to read. The, the state of the game and where things are going and and realizing who should be where and what's going to be the most dangerous thing at this moment and I felt I felt as though Manchester United did that really well against Spurs and I felt that Chelsea did that really badly against Man United essentially when you said at the beginning that Potter went with a more ambitious press than Ten Hag what you meant by ambitious was reliant on the player's ability to read the cues required and make the necessary interventions to execute the press as opposed Absolutely. to, and I know that's something you've spoken a lot about with respect to Bielsa's leads, where you believe that um, they execute the man-oriented press partially in the in the hope that it eases the decision-making burden on the players. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned leads because leads do a, a basically an absolute man-marking system across the field. Um, apart from they have a plus one overload at the back so that they have a bit more defensive cover. That has to come from somewhere, so it comes from the front. So usually the striker will have two defending responsibilities. But the problem is, is when you play that kind of system, it's so easy to pull players around and generate space. That's why teams are, like, are liking hybrid pressing systems more because you do have that zonal element there a little bit more. So if a player goes off... On a, in a certain direction and you're marking them you can leave them because you'll have another marking responsibility and another player will have a marking responsibility which usually encapsulates that player as well so it just gives you a lot more stability in central midfield areas usually so that you don't lose the structure of the game so before i kind of relate this back to the to to the game and chelsea's sub because this is what prompted the sub ultimately i want to talk about united's uh, exploitation of the fact that Chelsea didn't perfectly uh, execute the hybrid aspect of the press. Because what we were discussing a lot during the rewatch, um, when Case and I first watched the game on Saturday, we both discussed that we thought Ericsson's execution was actually quite poor in this game. But when we watched it back, what we saw was a lot of 
play funneling around Erickson's ability to create space, both with his movement off the ball that facilitates passes through Chelsea. We were super and wrong. And with his... <laughs> Sorry, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We were very wrong. And it it was basically around two things. One was Erickson's ability to make quick actions when there were lapses in Chelsea's press. First touch, receive. Second touch, release. And the second thing was Erickson's ability to use his movement to actually open up opportunities for United to play through Chelsea's lapses in con- concentration. Um, and we saw that a few times in the match. One thing that I wanted to to bring up about what you, what you were saying about hybrid presses, and again, I'm going to define that term because I think it, it's really easy to get caught up in the minutiae here. Hybrid press, any press where you're asking uh, players to switch marking assignments depending on where the ball is or game state. Uh, so it's, it's basically just decision-dependent pressing. You can actually sort of look at the Spurs match in the first 35 minutes against the Chelsea match through the lens of the success or failure of uh, key players in a hybrid press. Uh, if you look at the Spurs match, Anthony was excellent at, execu- at executing the hybrid press. And also Bruno, Fred, and Casemiro followed him really well when he did make the decisions that he made. If you look at Chelsea in uh, the match against Man United, Jorginho and Aubameyang, to a certain extent, really failed in this capacity. And you could maybe even say Chalobah did to a certain extent because he would have been the player who should have come, come on to Ericsson when Jorginho made mistakes. But yeah, so you can... I think that's what makes this an interesting matchup and why I think you could say this is sort of a, a tactical battle between two managers is you can really break it down to not how anybody played the ball, not how anybody... You know, not some crazy dribbling run or some technical display. It was decision-making, making the difference between who collected points and who didn't. I think it's it's worth saying at this point as well, the two players that we're talking about who are having to make a lot of the decisions there. On the one hand, you've got Graham Potter, who has been working with the team for years now, where they're able to do hybrid pressing systems, no problem. And he's come into a new club and he's making Jorginho do something he probably isn't very good at, which is why I think after 35 minutes, he just pulls the plug on it. And to be honest with you, watching the first 35 minutes, I'm surprised it didn't happen earlier. When it comes to Eric Ten Hag, he's using Anthony, a player who he's worked with before, to be able to do a lot of the heavy lifting in that hybrid press against Spurs, and it does work out. So I think this is something that we really need to impress on people, that the ability to be able to play these hybrid systems is really tough, and some players will be able to do it and some players won't. And I think that's what it boils down to, is the fact that Ten Hag can rely on Anthony to be able to make those decisions because he's worked with him before, whereas Potter probably can't do that with Jorginho. And I think that probably plays into why one of the reasons that he was so desperate to get Anthony. Not that it justifies $100 million, but it, I think it certainly has to do with why he said, pull the trigger on the $100 million. Just because I, I think it's having a huge, we're, we're seeing it's having a huge effect on results in, in, the, in real time. So before I talk about, or, or before we talk about consequences about how this is because we've we've just talked about pressing structures for about 20 minutes here and i feel like and a you know lot i've of... i've loved it i've loved every <laughs> moment of it i'm i'm very glad and i knew this would happen um and i want to have a discussion about for people who don't fully um who aren't fully intuitively sort of thinking about these things why that's important but before that i just want to talk about how what you said there that Chelsea made the change, and we've been implying that Chelsea made this change of Kukurella for Kovacic to 
address this issue. Now, how did that change address the issue is my next question. Yeah, so as I saw it, there was maybe, well, as I described it in the video, there was two areas where I think it, they could improve. And one of them was obviously the the, the Manchester United build-up was pa- bypassing them a lot. So that was the, the main issue that they had. Um, I think the other one, although to a lesser extent, because as we've already said, the Manchester United press wasn't actually causing a huge amount of problems for Chelsea. Uh, the problems seemed to be not necessarily in the first phase of their build-up, but the second phase of their build-up. But... Um, I think one of the issues there was that it was easy for Manchester United to match up against the back three with their front three. And as a result of that, I think Potter just wanted to get a bit of an overload in that area. Um, and so he, the way that he did that was just by changing the formation. So essentially, he took a, a centre-back out and moved them into midfield. So you end up with a back four rather than a back five, which changes the pressing patterns for Manchester United, so makes it a little bit harder for them to press. Uh, and, and I think that is definitely true in the in the first line of pressure. Manchester United struggled to press a little bit more because there was that overload. Uh, but then in the midfield area, what you've done is you've added an extra midfielder. So you've gone to a midfield three. Jorginho has gone a little bit more zonal. And then you've got the other two midfielders a little bit more... Um, I, I guess man-oriented, we'll say, because they again they did have different responsibilities. But essentially, you've got um, Fernandez covered all the time. You've got Eriksson covered a lot better as well. And then Mason Mount, who had been playing as an outside forward, then dropped onto the pivot play. He's now basically playing as a ten, uh, and he just basically tracked Casemiro. Um, and then the, the two forwards remaining were then made into sort of wide forwards uh, either side of him. Um, so they were able to go onto the centre-backs. It was it becomes a very narrow formation. And so what essentially how I would describe that change is, is that Potter had wanted to, I think, dominate in the wide areas. He wanted to build up, move the ball down those wide areas. He decided that that wasn't working because Manchester United were getting too much of an upside through the middle. And so he just decided to match up those battles in the centre of the pitch a little bit better. Seed possession in the wide areas but also stop Manchester United from having so much joy and um, I think that made the game a little bit more stodgy because both teams were essentially trying to do the same thing Um, yeah and and where United's press maybe uh, compromised a little was compromised a little bit um, in how they were able to mark the center backs directly with the front three I think what they gained from Chelsea's change was actually an ability to address the issue with the fullbacks so before we were talking about how United's front three were highly engaged and the fullbacks were sit- were sitting back for whatever reason, which left the wingbacks um, unmarked. Of that, to be clear, that was yes, the, that which was left the, the wingbacks unmarked. Yeah. So that's 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 what I was getting yeah. to, right? It left the wingbacks unmarked, and what that allows Chelsea to do is bypass that with a few simple moves or one pass from Kepa. Um, after the change, they're playing a back four, which allows United to engage three of Chelsea's back four, including both of the wingbacks who are now fullbacks and both center backs. Or, they would engage three of the four and then have the option on the fourth one. And we also, I'm not sure we addressed this, but Chelsea seemed to go right a lot from goal kicks. So I think the focus ended up being Sancho on the right back and then Anthony and Rashford on the center backs. Um, but they essentially, they gave up that trade-off in ability to find the wing backs uh, because they weren't finding enough joy from having that ability to break United's press. And in exchange, they gained an ability to prevent United from finding gaps in their midfield and build up by going 4v3 um, and, and having the extra man, as well as uh, reducing Jorginho's responsibility to make critical decisions in their execution of the press. I'm going to derail us again, and then you guys can get back into this. because <laughs> I, I know I, you both look like you're chomping at the bit. But anyway, 
because this is a Man United podcast and because um, I think Aaron and I have sort of developed a few themes over the course of this season that we're noticing. Like, for instance, I think a lot of our listeners will recognize the dynamic of De Gea going long from goal kicks versus going short from goal kicks. Bruno's wastefulness and his inability to carry the ball versus potential solutions to that or lack of box threat. These are things we talk about over and over in episodes. I think what we've seen this past week with the Chelsea and the Spurs match and also the Newcastle match to a lesser extent is the press has gotten a lot better. John, you've made a really good point, and I think you've actually opened Aaron and I's eyes Aaron and my eyes to this, that the press is not that good. It's better. It exists. It's a work in progress. A thing that I think has separated United, or rather has, has limited United's ceiling in the past half decade, has been there wasn't this clear defensive structure and these clear uh, defensive decisions being made out of possession to allow United to beat teams and to control matches um, under previous managers. And so what that means, it doesn't mean that, oh, now that there's this, some this defensive structure, United are going to collect more points than they did every other, every other season under Solskjaer and Rangnick and Mourinho. It doesn't mean that. What it does mean is that there's clear things that they can improve on now that if they click, they can get a lot better. Whereas in the past, the only way for those Solskjaer teams to get better out of possession was to buy players who were better in duels than the players that were already uh, playing. Um, play Dan James. Was, sure, exactly. Some pl- pl- Play players who are better defensively or get luckier. Or have De Gea have a great sh- shot-stopping season. Like Those were the options to raise the ceiling of the team. But now instead, you have incremental ways that United can slowly get better and in turn beat teams. Like that is the key difference here. It is not that United are going to be better tomorrow than they've ever been in history. What's so meaningful, I think, about these matches is that the groundwork is there for them to be really good. Not that they're already really good. You guys agree with that? Sorry, that was a huge rant and I know I took a... Totally off track. But. That's exactly where I was going next. Okay. So <laughs> it's perfect. All right. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what happened in possession. Maybe some of the effects of Chelsea's press on United's ability to play. Um, some of their actions in the final third and how they increased or decreased the probability of scoring goals. And perhaps why it took so long to finally find a breakthrough in this match. So stay tuned for all that. All right, welcome back. In this section, we'll talk about in possession. Chelsea obviously had a lot more problems earlier in the match uh, than after they made the sub with preventing United from being able to execute buildup. And I wanted to talk about, um, because like Kay said, a big theme of the episodes that we've done so far this season um, has been around the sort of, I think, the biggest pivotal point in United's tactical approach this season, which was essentially stopping from playing out of the back and trying to execute deep build up against a high press um, in order to 
try and bypass the midfield, go long, and contest a lot of second balls. And I think one main sort of uh, consequence of Chelsea's sub or their inability to execute their press early on was United's increased ability to play out of the back, um, picking out the central midfielders, uh, in particular Eriksen, uh, from the center backs in possession. So let's talk a little bit about how maybe uh, that allowed United to do a lot more um, because I think this is a good match to show why playing out of the back is so beneficial for teams. Um, and let's talk a little bit about how maybe United doing that allowed them to sustain more pressure um, and actually build up better um, and, and get into the final third with more effectiveness in central areas in this match. Yeah, so I think the the most important point to to start with, I think, is that, as we said at the beginning, Chelsea started out with quite a passive high block with their front three. And this is a way that they've been playing against um, elite sides, I would say. So they played that way against Milan. They've been playing slightly different against mid-table, lower-table Premier League sides. Um, But this meant that they were happy enough to give Manchester United the ball out of the back in the first half, um, up until that that formation change that we talked about. Now, once that formation change was made, we go to a 4-4-2 diamond. And as we've said, Mason Mount drops onto... Casemiro is the pivot and then the two forward players so Aubameyang and Raheem Sterling orientate themselves against the two centre-backs and they press on much higher and so what that means is is that there's an impact on Manchester United's build-up phase um, compared to what was happening before when it was much more passive and they were happy to allow the centre-backs to have that that ball. Now we've also already talked about the fact that when you adopt that 4-4-2 diamond it's a much narrower um, formation and so what that then does is it, it allows space in those wide areas where where Chelsea before had wing backs much more advanced stopping build up in those areas so you've essentially invited Manchester United to try and get the ball into wider areas after making that switch um, which is I think something that wasn't able to happen as much in, in the first half so what we see is a, is a, a change from building up and getting through the centre because Chelsea's press wasn't working to then Chelsea loading the centre allowing space on the in the wide areas and saying to Manchester United come on then you can you can you can build up through there now essentially with the 4-4-2 diamond um, you've got the wide forwards as we've said on the centre backs and the full backs are left relatively free um the, the two wide forwards will sort of rotate across them a little bit. So you will see um, the wide forward on the on one side push onto the fullback on that side and, and vice versa. But largely speaking, the responsibility for marking those was usually one of the outside midfielders. So it was either Kovacic or um, uh, Loftus-Cheek on the other side, yeah. So that meant that if you could get the ball to your fullbacks, the fullbacks had a chance to get moving before one of those players would get across to them. And we saw that happen as a, as a movement in the second half as well. So two very different build-up structures. It's the difference between being able to build up through the middle and generate chances from there, which is where I think most of the chances in the first half came from, um, to having more space in the wide areas and getting players like Anthony isolated 1v1 against fullbacks um, in the second half, which I think generated more chances in the wide areas in the second half. Perfect. Uh, before we talk a little bit more about maybe the wide areas, um, Diogo, Balmarading, Dalo, um, let's first go back to maybe the initial buildup with the center backs. Because we've seen this a lot with United this season. And, and Case, I'm going to go to you for this. Um, 
when United center backs are able to have time on the ball, that is a huge enabler for them to be able to play shorter and build up, I think. Um, over the last few weeks, you've seen that. I think against, I want to say Leicester, their press was quite broken and it allowed United to play a lot more with Lissandro and was it Varane? It was Varane on the ball. Um, whereas in games where the center backs are engaged, that creates a lot more issues. Do you, do you think that this is a case of, uh, of United sort of being able to, um, or, or improving their ability to play out of the back specifically against teams that don't engage them high up the pitch and then maybe struggling a little bit more to do it when teams do. I mean, all teams are that way, but United, it seems like they almost don't play out of the back at all or or strictly force it into specific areas when uh, when faced against sort of those higher presses. That is a very interesting question. For me, and I, I, I by no means profess to be the authority on this, but for me, I think the big difference when we've been pressed high has been how the midfielders have handled the press on the turn and how much space they've been able to find when they've been on the turn rather than whether the center backs are pressed. That isn't to say that you're wrong, though. So I'm, I'm curious as to your thinking here. Um, I think my point is more that the center backs having the time from the ball is or sorry the center backs having time on the ball is what allows united to start moves that involve playing out of the back whereas when the moves are forced to start with de gea that's when or 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 start from de gea going past the center backs into midfield that's when united tend to make problematic decisions or execute badly and leads to the uh to the build-up breaking down and and transitions against i see what you're saying yeah yeah so i i think you're right, uh, and uh, De Gea obviously still struggles to pick out passes. I think a lot of people were talking about his improvement before this match, but then I think he was pretty poor distributing the ball today, which I think goes back to the conversation we had after Spurs last week, which is that these things don't happen overnight, and it, he might be a little too far along in the age curve for a goalkeeper to to really pick that up. Um yeah, so so as for improvement in that area and um, what to do about it, I'm not sure. I think you sort of have to keep on either going long and, and surrendering that advantage that you have building out, which we saw against Chelsea in that second half, or you gotta have you have to make a change of goalkeeper. Um, but I don't know that I, – I mean, I know for a fact you know, I don't have a goalkeeper who could really make a difference right now, so – yeah, so I think John implied this, but didn't explicitly state it, which was the fact that he said that Anthony, and in particular United's wide players, Shaw, Dallo, Anthony, and Sancho until he was subbed, um, were more were beneficiaries of the fact that uh, Chelsea switched up their approach in wide areas um, and allowed United to sort of carry into wide areas and progress in wide areas in the second half. Um, what that sort of implies, I think, that that maybe John didn't say was the fact that I think it also was indicative of United's struggle to really progress and advance in central areas. And in the second half, what, yeah, after the sub, I think I think there was still some. I still think there was some central chances created um, because I think that players like Shaw and Dallow are being encouraged to invert 
and I think there's 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 phases of play where we I think you see in the in in some chances where um, Ericsson, for example, is able to find space and clip balls into wide areas um, from central spaces as well. So there's definitely a few chances that are coming from central areas. But I think that because the space opens up in those wide channels a lot more, it's just much easier to to progress the ball in those areas. So you're just going to generate more chances there. Can I say something about De Gea? Because I... As as a as a neutral, and I've heard you guys basically talk about De Gea in every episode that you've done so far. But um, it's not it's not necessarily about uh, about De Gea. But the 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 situation that Manchester United are in, and this is something that Case referenced before. Uh, what I like to say about the way that Eric Ten Hag is developing this team is that he's developing an ability to code switch. So Manchester United for for ages under under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, e.g were a team that could sit deep and transition at speed. And the problem is is that the squad is sort of set up for that. And you have to try and build this new style of play that elite sides need to play if they're going to compete at the top level. Um, give or take some weird managers okay, at, at the elite level. But largely speaking, as an elite team, you have to be able to maintain possession of the ball. You have to be able to uh, build up through opposition presses and you have to be able to generate repeatable chances uh, as much as you can in the final third. Um, and Eric Ten Hag's, as I see it, his problem is you've got to move Manchester United from one code, which is building up, uh, sitting deep, absorbing pressure, developing these transitional moments, which you're going to thrive on because of the players that you have, to being able to play this more elite style of football. And the problem is, is that, okay, we saw this at the beginning of Eric Ten Hag's time. So he tries to play build-up football from the off. It doesn't go well. We see what happens versus Brighton. We see what happens versus Brentford. And everyone says, oh, Eric Ten Hag is going to have to tear up the, the, the copybook and start again. And um, how do you ever solve these problems? But I think the story of what we've seen in Eric Ten Hag's time now is that he slowly developed a team who can switch between codes. And this game is so interesting because that's what happens. So the build-up in, in the first half, well, up until the sub, is the sort of build-up that you are going to want to see your team doing if you're an elite side. Now, that's that's in the early phases. I still think there's big problems in the final third, but like that's there's yeah, plenty of <laughs> yeah yeah and th- there's plenty of big there's plenty of big sides who still struggle to build up in the final third after years of the same manager so it's not like the worst thing in the world but this this sort of shows that that Eric Ten Hag is slowly moving his team between two different codes and he's going to be able to in certain games so against um against Arsenal against Liverpool those are the sorts of games where you'll be able to play your your earlier code, the code that works so well for you. And then in, in these sorts of games, we're seeing now games against Spurs, games against Chelsea, that second code starting to show through a little bit more when often the tactical conditions are maybe a little bit more beneficial. This is what I tweeted in the week and got um, various responses to, but this is what I was referring to. Manchester United are only going to be able to build up in certain tactical conditions and this game when it started yes. out the tactical conditions were there to be able to do it when those tactical conditions changed Eric Ten Hag can then switch back to the other code because of the uh, because of the conditions and actually benefit from them as well so I, I think part of the problem with with talking about Manchester United at the moment is that you're constantly having to switch between these two different codes and you know there's going to be certain games where people say oh you know David De Gea is he so bad um, but that's because the tactical conditions favour it. And the, the point is, is that to be able to be 
a, a truly elite side, I think Eric Ten Hag is going to be wanting to play in that second code as much as possible. And he can't do that right now because of his goalkeeper. His goalkeeper is holding him back. Um, and so I think you can be, it's, it's important whenever you're talking about players improving. I say this all the time at the moment, but whenever you're talking about that, how much is it of it is to do with the systems that they are playing within? And I think at the moment, any improvement that I've seen from David De Gea has been in those games where I think the tactical conditions suit him. And I, I'm not convinced that once you're playing in those sorts of tactical conditions against a better side in certain phases, so sides that press better in the higher areas, uh, in particular in this instance, he's just not up to scratch. Um, and so hopefully as a, as a neutral, I could get away with saying that because I feel as though Manchester United fans have to have to be careful about what they say about these sorts of players. But that's just my observation from what I've watched with Man United this season. I think that was perfect. Um, Case, do you have anything to add or can we go to final third? No, God, please. No more day. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the final third. So we sort of alluded to the fact that United in many parts of this match and in different areas of the pitch were able to reach the final third. And against Spurs, United did have a lot of chances Uh, We spoke a little bit about the shot quality and how the shot quality was limited by Spurs. Um, And I think a lot of that has to do with how United play in the final third. Um, The one that people know I harp on about is suboptimal shooting. And I think something that's even more important um, and and really showed in this match was uh, the absence of sort of a focal point uh, outlet for passes uh, in behind, around, uh, and against the defense that actually facilitate high high quality shots and not just high volume shots um so i think maybe a natural starting point for the final third is some of the stuff we talked about with uh rashford's movement um there were situations where he was really quick to read cues and actually ended up in some good spots and then other situations where maybe not as much yeah i think when it comes to the final third stuff for me um it's it's worth saying that the again the thing that prompted me to tweet about uh, Manchester United saying that actually in some of the situations where it looks like Manchester United have got better it's because the tactical conditions have favored them i think the spurs game is interesting from that point of view because the whole point of what spurs are trying to do is invite play, oppositions forward in order to generate space at the back to then exploit and it led to this sort of really weird thing, which is Manchester United were really good out of possession in that game. We've already talked about it because they were able to stop Spurs from gen- from like benefiting from those moments when the ball was turned over. Um, so, so Manchester United were able to stop Spurs from doing anything. But in terms of what they were able to create in that game, it, there wasn't very many big chances generated at all. Now, on one on the one hand, that's because that's what Spurs do, right? They sit deep, they make it hard for you to generate chances, and the the major, yeah. majority of chances that Manchester United generated in that game were like outside of the box. And the goals that you scored actually were uh, a deflection from outside of the box and a really nice Bruno finish from just behind the penalty spot, if I remember correctly. And just as a disclaimer here, Spurs actually concede the lowest quality of shots of any team in the Premier League, yeah. and it's actually not even that close. Like. They're about two to three percent clear per shot of pretty much every other team in the league. And, yeah. and this is a statistic where two to three percent makes a huge difference. Just so everybody yeah, knows. Uh, the entire league range is about six percent, so it's a massive difference. Yeah, and when you're when you take into account the the quantity of shots that you're taking in the course of a season, that makes a big difference, right? Um, and this is not to say that the, the or to be negative about Manchester United in particular. I do agree with you that sh- shot 
decision-making is poor at the moment when it comes to Manchester United. And I suspect that a lot of this comes down to the fact that at the moment, Eric Ten Hag is just glad for his teams to be getting the ball progressed into those dangerous areas. And the final third stuff is going to be stuff that they will be working on, but will will take time to, to get right. You need to be able to repeatedly arrive in the final third in order to do good final third stuff. Um, so I think with Spurs, yes, look, you you're, you're, you have a little bit of nice variance in your favour. You do generate a couple of good chances. I think there's a Rashford chance. Um, and these seem to be the chances that you're generating at the moment, right? Getting Rashford in those um, situations where he's getting in behind the defence, despite the fact that there isn't a huge amount of space. Maybe not the best situation for him, for his his sort of profile. But um, yeah, th- these are th- you are generating those chances. Um, in this game, I think it was... Um, the same sorts of things happening. So not again, not a huge amount of big chances generated. So um, again, the Rashford chance where he's one on one with with Kepa, uh, and then another sort of I, I I think of as being like a, a sort of standard Rashford chance, right, where he's got the ball on the right hand side of the box and he's going to pull it back across the keeper, try and hit the far corner, um, and then the other big chance I guess was the Casemiro header, uh, but beyond that wasn't particularly uh, big chances but I mean better chances than than Chelsea are generating so um, I, I think that in the end give or take the penalty you would say that it, a draw is a fair result but the big question is what what do Manchester United have to do now to start generating more and 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 better and more repeatable chances right and I've, we've said the phrase more repeatable a lot uh, and that's kind of the point, right? Because the more repeatable your chances are, the less you're relying on variance. Um, and I think Manchester United have the players to be able to do that as well. So this is something that should be a, a, a sensible approach to it. So I'm kind of interested in your thoughts on this because this is another reason why I've been a little bit down on Manchester United and people have have talked about this and, and, and said, oh, you know, Manchester United is so much better than they were. And I obviously agree with that. Um, but I see similar things with Manchester United that I saw throughout Thomas Tuchel's t- side time right which is how do you how do you really generate dangerous chances so how would you answer that question yeah so uh i think first i'll i'll, I'll work backwards you invoked tuchel <laughs> which <laughs> uh in, in, yeah in terms of like stagnant final third play i think he, he was pretty heavily criticized during especially the latter time the latter moments of chelsea but i think it was honestly it, it was pretty stagnant throughout um, at least in league play. Uh, I think the difference, and the reason I'm not concerned about that right now, is A, what you said. That's just not the point in the process United are at right now, and it's, I'm sure it's not the focus in trade. But it's also that uh, Tugel, I'm confident based on Tanakh's, like, Ajax side, and also just generally the football you've seen him play, He's not going to be concerned about committing numbers forward, which I think is the key issue with Tuchel, right? Is is there was a an odd sort of a obsession with defensive control uh, in certain phases that meant they were really stagnant and non-dynamic because they weren't committing sort of key overloads forward in in key moments that would have created chances but also created vulnerability. I, I am not worried about that. Uh, at least from like a value trade-off standpoint with United's current manager. Um, the other explanation for why we aren't creating chances in these situations is what I think Aaron just um, referenced, and that is 
there's really no box presence. And we saw this today in our rewatch. As successful as Rashford has been at getting these big chances in certain phases, his movement and decision-making in the final third is not that of a striker for the most part, especially against settled defensive shapes. And I think that's hugely limiting uh, for this team. We talked about Martial a little bit. He's obviously injured all the time. I'm not actually convinced he makes it that big of a difference. He makes the possession play more fluid, but he doesn't have the chance creation. Yeah, I agree. I don't think he... We, we talked... There, 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 there were a couple of moments. There's one moment where Sancho gets the ball from Bruno. And I believe this is in the second half. And Sancho is has the opportunity to play a first-time ball uh, after... Uh, with Rashford... It's the first half. Kukurea is the player Rashford's running across. And Rashford's just a step behind because he slows down when he doesn't get that, that ball in behind when Sancho gets it instead. And I think that's just sort of like a, a microcosm of what separates him from what United should be looking for in a striker, which is he doesn't make secondary runs. He's, he's not really particularly physical in the box. He doesn't want to have to fight a center back for a shot. He wants to be clean through on goal or be shooting at a center back and trying to get it around him. Yeah, Sorry, I've, I've, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent here, but I, I really think... You can break it down to three things. The process, the tendencies of the manager, and the personnel you have in the final third. Uh, and I think striker is the main key there. Yeah. You've mentioned that you're not worried because of Ten Hag's approach in the past. And obviously his most recent Ajax side had Sebastian Allaire up front, which obviously makes a difference. But arguably, just as good a side was the was the earlier iteration of Ajax where he had Dusan Tadic as a false nine. Do you think there's any sense in which Ten Hag could use the players that he's got to be able to recreate that? Or do you think there's structural reasons or reasons within even like league effects which would stop him from being able to do that? Because we spent some time during the the stream when we were watching talking about how someone like Victor Osserman would make a big difference to this Manchester United side, the way that they're set up. Do you think that that's, it's, it's impossible to actually get any upside from playing without a striker uh, or a, a classic striker in this sense? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm going to say I think it's practically impossible. The reason I say that is you, you invoke Dusan, Dusan Tadic. Um, Tadic really was never the striker for that team in the league. Uh, he, but the, the striker who was that was was it not Donny Van der Beek who is a player who you already own, right? I think so Casper Dolberg. <laughs> it was it was him. Um, it was uh, uh, Lasina Treore. It was later on Holler. Um, it was Huntelaar. Uh, there were there were yeah. He, he there's Tadish played in this in the Champions League. Uh, I think for specific tactical reasons. Uh, partially because just the, the the defensive lines that as a team they were facing were higher and it meant that there really wasn't so much of a need for a, a big body yeah. to, to hawk yeah. the ball at. But in the league there was. And so I, I would say there's a historical preference for that big striker. And I think that is because, and I think T actually referenced this today, you just need some kind of physical advantage in the box. Um, I don't think a false nine can, or, or somebody like Martial, who's like not a box present striker can provide you that. Obviously there's, there's smaller changes that you can make that'll alleviate this. Like for instance, I think the wing dynamics are really screwed up right now 
in the final third. The Anthony and Sancho aren't really releasing Shaw and Dallow uh, properly, and I think that has to do with how the players are orienting themselves. Uh, the midfield runs aren't really complementary. There's there's things you can change before you say we've come as far as we can with the current personnel. But at the end of the day, um, I think I think the way this team is going to play, you need somebody who's going to break their nose on the crossbar. Um, yeah, that's, that's how I feel about it. But maybe I'll, maybe I'll be proven wrong. We'll see. I think that's a really good answer. Incidentally. I think that's a good distinction to make because a lot of people watched Ajax in the Champions League. So I think there's this misconception that as well as having this reputation as a possession manager and also uh, having gone really deep in the Champions League, so their most rem- their most memorable team played many of those matches with Dusan Tadic up front. I think there's a misconception widely of what Ten Hag sees as his number nine. And I think that misconception is even further exacerbated by the fact that uh, United's current striker options make Martial this sort of ideal facto, presence yeah. to have up front when I don't think that's necessarily the case when you look at Ten Hag's past teams and what this United team currently lack uh, from an effective attacking unit standpoint. I will be very surprised if we, if United, when I say we, do not buy a really big, burly, hopefully not lumbering striker. Um, Chris Wood. Because, yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> there's there's a lot of there's a, there's different players on this spectrum, right? Like I don't think Sebastian Haller is a particularly good footballer, uh, personally. They, he doesn't fall within my preference for what you want in a striker. That doesn't actually mean I don't like big box presence strikers. Just I don't think Haller has the other stuff that you want. A Simmons on the other end of the spectrum, where I think he's this crazy athlete and also does the box presence stuff and also has a ceiling as a shot creator that makes him way better. I don't know where United wind up on the spectrum there, but I'm very confident they there, there will be someone like that, uh, at least as a squad option. Uh, that's that's my thinking. Awesome. Uh, let's take a little bit of a look ahead at some of the upcoming matches. United have obviously played out these matches against, well, three of the top five in Newcastle, Spurs, and Chelsea, and they've played a number of different tactical blueprints within those three, but bottom line is they'll be facing some easier opposition in the upcoming weeks. Um, how do these performances sort of change your idea of how United might look in those matches leading up to the World Cup? This is a really good question to which I don't really have a very good answer. Um, but I suppose the when you say um, easier fixtures, we're talking simply... Let me list them off. Yeah, go for yeah. it. Uh, Sheriff, West Ham... I believe uh, Real Sociedad, Aston Villa twice, and Fulham. Hmm. So I guess on paper, like the ammonia fixtures would be easier fixtures, but I don't know what you guys would say were the things that you learned from them or whether or not there was any benefit in those games. We learned nothing from those matches. (laughs) And so it, it sort of becomes an interesting question then because as I said before, if you're doing this approach, which is sort of code switching between different approaches, um, I, I see these majority of these easier fixtures to be opportunities to work on build up in possession, in particular in the first and middle thirds. Um, 
whether or not we learn anything from that, I don't know, because some of those teams, I think, will be easier to to, to build up against than, than others. And I suppose some of those teams may try and, and sort of press smartly. Um, I, I'll be honest, I don't know much about Sheriff, how they're playing at the moment. I suspect they probably won't cause you a huge amount of problems, but um, that that would be what I would be thinking about. So... so if if a team is going to be easier to build up against, the question is going to be, are we looking like we're improving in the final third? Are we generating those sorts of chances that we're talking about, even with respect to what we've just talked about in terms of not having a box presence? Because I think that's going to have to be the sort of thing that, that Manchester United are working on now, because there is room for improvement without changing personnel, I believe. And cases mentioned, particularly wing dynamics. And I think that's that's true. There's definitely lots more that can be done in those wide areas. We've talked a lot about shot decisions, which I think a lot of people who maybe don't work in the industry sort of get, you know, roll their eyes and say, oh, you know, people who care about XG what don't want anyone to shoot from long distances. And that's not what we're saying. We're saying there are lots of situations, if you go back and watch the tape, where there are more dangerous situations able to be generated rather than shooting in certain situations. And uh, I think that's an area where immediately when you stop doing that and you start thinking about what you're doing in those situations, wing dynamics will benefit that as well. Um, These are the sort of things that Manchester United should be working on in these quote-unquote easier fixtures for me. Yeah, I I think I agree with those things. West Ham will be an interesting one, especially without... Varane. I, I think we'll probably try to go. Probably will. It's probably a match where, we'll, where we will see us build short, but I don't think they're going to press us super high the way like. Whereas a match like Newcastle was sort of a, a chance to simulate a big match without actually playing a big team that could punish you to the same extent. So I think maybe that's another one of those favorable favorable environments, like John was saying with De Gea. Like I don't think we. we I don't think we'll learn much from West Ham in that capacity. But maybe in the final third, we will. I could be wrong about this, but I think the team that pressed the most aggressively of the ones in this run are probably Fulham. Um, and I think that, one, they aren't a particularly athletic team that's going to give United a ton of trouble from um, from situations, even if they win the ball. They seem to have... I haven't looked at their pressing stats, but they seem to be overperforming a lot on the expected metrics, which to me is about right they don't have the player quality even though i think they're doing okay from a tactical standpoint um and i think that might be the most interesting match to see if united go uh short and try to uh perhaps implement against a more difficult setup uh with the hope that they won't be punished for mistakes or whether they just completely uh abandon that approach and as john said wear the first coat yeah i think Weirdly, and maybe this is something we've seen this season, Manchester United are probably going to look better against bigger sides. And the big question is going to be how well they can put away these smaller sides. Um, because it has, even though, you know, we've talked about Ammonia and the, I think the second game that you played against them, you, you obviously battered them in terms of chance creation, but um, it still felt like a labour to get there, there. And I feel as though a lot of these games in the the, the rest of the season are going to be Manchester United will compete in the elite games. They won't win all of them, obviously. But the big question is, they're they're almost at that stage before you become like a a properly elite side when the problem becomes breaking down teams who recognise you're a good side, sit deep and make it really hard for you to to break those those teams down. So I I think that's going to be the difference between top four and 
top six. I think you'll definitely be in the top six. I think you could sneak into the top four if you're able to address some of those issues vis-a-vis breaking down sides who are just going to sit in because they know it's worth their while. Point collection, especially in those matches where sides sit deep against you and you still haven't figured out how to solve those deep blocks, comes down to whether your high-volume, low-quality shots fly in and whether the few opportunities that you do give up get finished. And obviously you can play better and play worse. So I'm not saying there's no difference and, and that United can't show progress in that area. You're speaking in aggregates. I'm sp- exactly. I'm speaking in aggregates. And I think I think there's a chance that frustrating days are ahead because um, I see a version of the Spurs match where Fred's shot doesn't get deflected uh, um, and maybe, you know, a set piece goal gets conceded or, you know, a shot flies in and it's 1-1. Uh, and, you know, draws, this is a sort of a weird personal thing that I have, but draws are closer to losses than they are to wins, at least in the league table. Maybe not mentally to the team, but in the league table, drawing is is a death sentence if you want to finish top four. And I think this high-variance approach leads United like the, and when I say high variance approach, these really crappy shots they're taking leads them uh, a rot path in terms of avoiding draws, winning these matches, getting top four. I mostly agree with that. Pen, uh, barring a dramatic increase in shot generation from one of or two of the forwards, um, I, I think it's going to come down to luck and how the other teams perform around United. Um, I think we're seeing shades that Tottenham might be a bit vulnerable. I think we're seeing very sort of overt signs that Liverpool might be vulnerable. I'm not sure how valid they are quite yet, but it's going to depend on things like that more than it's going to depend on, you know, how dramatically United change in ability throughout the season, I think is what we're all implying until you get the chance to reinforce the squad. I feel like this has been Manchester United all season, right? You've had a couple of big games in a row and and, got, and gone up and then lost a couple in a row that you might maybe didn't expect to or, or I mean, you maybe did. But it, it's felt as though it's been sort of ebb and flow as, as a season. And I, I expect that that will continue. I don't, I don't think that this sort of mini renaissance that we've seen necessarily means that that all of the bad times are over but I do think that that there's a certain certain flexibility as I said like you can code switch it's becoming a thing I don't think you're you're necessarily elite at any of those things but we're seeing signs that you can play one way play the other and get results in in both in both ways and there's a lot of improvement I would say that needs to be done in the second code that we're talking about so possession like build up being able to generate chances, etc. Um, but in terms of the off-ball side of things, what Eric Ten Hag has achieved this season is incredible in a lot of respects. And I think that makes a huge difference to to the way that... I think even you two were thinking about Manchester United maybe even a month ago compared to what you're thinking about them now. Uh, the ability to be able to operate with completely different pressing systems and they work um, just makes a huge difference in... in um, in, in a league like the Premier League. And uh, yeah, the impression that I've got actually has been that if you can con- control the ball out of possession in those in those higher areas, it not only are you stopping the opposition from being as dangerous, but I feel as though Manchester United are becoming more dangerous from counter-pressing situations themselves as well, which just adds another element to, to their game. So yeah, I think 
if it, to me it feels very bitty at the moment you see good things you see bad things um and you don't necessarily get a good sense of what is going to be good and what is going to be bad in each game but i think the the, the trajectory is definitely upwards and uh, there are definitely positives to be taken from particularly the last few weeks well we're here for some ebb and flow after the last season of football we've had to watch john um Everyone knows where to find you, I'm pretty sure. We'll plug it in the description anyways. Um, thank you so much for joining us today at now what is now 1.30 in the fine Great British morning. Um, no, thank you so much for having me on. I, I have to cover a lot of teams. And so having a podcast like this that I can listen to and get smart takes and steal them for my own is, is always very much beneficial to me. So in many respects, I should be thanking you guys. Pretty much any of the good Manchester United takes that I have on any of the channels that I operate on are probably yours. So thanks very much for that. Too kind. Hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details. You can follow us at Devils ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.